This morning, we get to reflect upon a mystery. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. My reflections this morning are going to be simply that, reflections that don't try to explain what is mystery, but to help us adore. But before we do that, a couple personal notes. Some of you may know that my wife, Susie, has been in the UK for a couple weeks now, and um, she had her interview on Thursday. She's trying to get her visa so she can enter the States uh, permanently. And the interview went as well as it possibly could have on Thursday, which is magnificent. So she will return to us. Um, I'm thankful for that. Um, seriously, though, the interview only lasted six minutes, which is astonishing, because normally you get grilled and they really press into it. And she called me and said, you wouldn't believe it. The person interviewing me at the embassy in London was born and raised in Irvine, California. <laughs> and has friends who have studied theology in Scotland. And so she said he didn't even ask me for two thirds of the documentation he was supposed to ask me for. He was just excited about the connections and just stamped it. So that's wonderful, yeah. So that's a tremendous gift and a delight. And thank you for your prayers, for your support throughout the whole process. And you know, for us as a family, I feel like that was kind of one of the last big pieces of the transition for us, just logistically. And so we're very thankful for that. Um, the other thing that's connected to that is simply that since we've been away from the kid, uh, the kids, especially been away from Susie for a couple weeks now, um, tomorrow, actually, I'm going to be taking the kids up to Canada, where Susie flew yesterday to spend, to wait out the next few weeks for her visa to come in the mail in Canada with her family. And so I'm going to take the kids up there tomorrow to be with Susie, which is lovely. Now, the real downside of that is that um, that means I'm not going to be here for Christmas Eve service, which is a real shame. I was so looking forward to it. I mean, the Lessons and Carol service is my favorite. And to be new with you guys, I wanted to be there with you in that moment. So I am grieving that. It was a tough decision to make, but we're going to bring the kids to be with Susie, and I'll be coming back after Christmas and be with you in the new year. But Jen's going to be taking over the Christmas Eve service. So it's still going to be amazing. It's probably going to be better. <laughs> We've been talking about how Advent is a journey. It's a journey of hopeful anticipation on the one hand, we've been saying. The Messiah is coming. He's going to set all things right again. He's going to make all things new. And on the other hand, it's a journey of longing and lament, like deep longing and lament because we recognize that our, not, our lives are not as they should be and our lives are not as they will be. All things are not right yet with us and with the world. And so we, the space is created in Advent, this tension, this place that we inhabit, and it's in that place that the cry of Advent comes out, come, Lord Jesus, come, please come. And we've also been talking over these weeks about how it's in this space that God wants to invite us to cultivate what we've been calling a prophetic imagination. The ability to see the details and the realities that not yet of our present lives in light of the fullness of the kingdom that is to come. So we've been asking this question, what does it look like to imagine and to live my present circumstances? My present illness, fear, addiction, my present loneliness, 
vocation in light of God's ultimate purposes for the world? What does it look like to see the present in light of the future? So we've been talking about cultivating this prophetic imagination. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, has been our guide every step of the way so far. We've seen these major images that have been projected that have helped us get into these prophetic passages and cultivate this prophetic imagination. And the first Sunday of Advent was an image of the mountain of the Lord being raised up high and all nations flowing to it to receive wisdom from the Lord on how to live in the fullness of his peace. The second image was of a new shoot growing out of a dead stump, life coming out of the most unexpected of places. And the third image was of a desert blossoming into a paradisal garden, the sense of a barren land becoming fruitful and full of life again. And each of those images the last three Sundays have been in black and white in order, in a sense, to give us some austerity, like we hope for this reality, we experience it in part now, but we're not fully there yet. There's still something black and white about it. It's not quite a color picture yet. But you notice that today and on Christmas Eve, the picture has turned to color very intentionally because it's about the light that has come. A virgin is giving birth to a son. The first three Sundays of Advent, we've been filled, our prophetic imaginations have been filled with these visions of what it will look like when the Messiah comes and all things are set right again. We're getting glimpses of the new creation that is on its way. And it's this cosmic and universal picture. And then today, we narrow down into something very earthy, something very concrete, something almost domestic and very personal the birth of a child, the one who will bring this new creation, this one who himself is the firstborn of all creation and the firstfruits of the new creation. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, in one sense, this prophetic vision seems to me to be the most straightforward, in a sense. You read it, and you're like, oh, it kind of sounds simple, doesn't it? We've heard it lots of times. But I have to admit, I've struggled with this a lot this week. <laughs> I mean, Stacy started putting her finger on a few of the dynamics of Isaiah chapter 7, but it is just actually kind of complex and messy. And there's a lot of mystery. I mean, there's complexity in the context of the promise. Like, there's Assyrian armies knocking at the door, about to take out God's people. God invites King Ahaz to ask him for a sign, most likely of protection and of commitment to his people. And Ahaz refuses the Lord and says, I won't put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to do that, Lord. And Isaiah interprets Ahaz's refusal as kind of this like pious pride or proud piety. And the Lord decides to give Ahaz a sign anyways. And yet there's complexity in the purpose of the sign that God is giving Ahaz. Is it a sign of judgment on Ahaz for his pride? Is it a sign of divine protection despite Ahaz's pride? Is it a sign that God will be with his people even in judgment and that judgment will not have the last word? And there's complexity in the details of the promise. The Hebrew word that is translated virgin in this passage has actually a bit more of a, a general and broader meaning than that. It, it actually just means young girl. 
not necessarily a virgin, although a virgin can be. And it wasn't until the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, that they chose a more specific word, meaning virgin in particular, not just young girl. And it's that particularity that actually Matthew picks up on and says, yes, a virgin in particular. And so there's complexity even about the details of the promise. And then there's the complexity that Stacy brought up about the identity of this person in the promise. Is it Ahaz's son, Hezekiah? Is it the person who we get in chapter 8 who's got a wonderful name? Maher Shahal Hashbaz. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Which means the spoils speeds and the prey hastens, which is not good news. Or is it some future Davidic king that we get kind of a vision of in chapter 9, who's going to be called a wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? There's a lot of complexity here. And as I wrestled with this and as I struggled, I think the coin dropped for me a few days ago that maybe that's part of the point, is the complexity of it. Maybe there's something to learn here. That God comes in the midst of the complexity of life. We don't necessarily know what his presence will look like when he comes. We don't know what it will mean for us when he comes. We don't know how we'll discern that he's actually in front of us, but we're told that he'll be there. He'll be right there. Right there, mysteriously present in all the complexity. And the thing is, is that we don't like this sort of mystery, do we? It's hard to control, hard to wrap our minds around. Mysteries are not problems to be solved. They are realities to be adored. Flannery O'Connor once said that mystery is the great embarrassment to the modern mind. It's the one thing we have a tough time handling. Because all of our technological advance, all of our learning, all of our precision, and all of our planning can't contain it. What's so unique about the prophetic imagination that I think we're being drawn into this morning is that prophetic imagination does not balk at mystery. It leans into mystery. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the mystery. I wonder if we can take a moment to ponder this for a second. If you can think about it in your, the complexities of your own life, in the world that you know today, today, what does it look like for God to be present? Where is he present? Where is Emmanuel, God with us? We had an Advent service a couple weeks ago called Hope Unfolding, where we expressed our longing and our lament. And there was a wonderful reading that we did. It was about a three or four minute reading called Cloth for the Cradle by Ann Weems. And it was so good. And it's been so striking for me this Christmas. I mean, as we're heading towards Christmas that I actually just want to spend a few minutes and just to read it to you and allow it to be kind of reflective words for you. And I'd actually encourage you if you have your art card, maybe let that be your visual guide as you hear these words coming to you. And we have the original of the painting on the art card as well. <laughs> Thanks to the Ronskis. When the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came. 
you crept in beside us, and no one knew. Only the few who dared to believe that God might do something different. Will you do the same this Christmas, Lord? Will you come into the darkness of tonight's world? Not the friendly darkness, as when sleep rescues us from tiredness, but the fearful darkness, in which people have stopped believing that war will end, or that food will come, or that a government will change, or that the church cares. Will you come into that darkness and do something different to save your people from death and despair? Will you come into the quietness of this town, not the friendly quietness as when lovers hold hands, but the fearful silence as when the phone has not rung, the letter has not come, the friendly voice no longer speaks, the doctor's face says it all. Will you come into that darkness and do something different? Not to distract, but to embrace your people? And will you come into the dark corners and the quiet places of our lives? We ask this, not because we are guilt-ridden or want to be, but because the fullness of our, our lives long for depend upon us being as open and vulnerable to you as you were to us when you came, wearing no more than diapers and trusting human hands to hold their maker. Will you come into our lives if we open them to you? And will you do something different? When the world was dark and the city was quiet, you came. You crept in beside us. Do the same this Christmas, Lord. Do the same this Christmas. Amen. When Matthew narrates the details of how it is that God crept in beside us, he says that these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, and Matthew tells us, which means God with us. You see, we talked about how there's complexity and mystery surrounding the prophetic promise that Isaiah gives. And in one sense, we expect that once it's fulfilled, that will solve a lot of the complexity. And we do get more specificity about who this child is and these sorts of things. But the fulfillment doesn't take away the mystery. It just makes it more intense and intensifies it. There's two aspects of this mystery that I just want to talk about. One is the mystery of time. Matthew, in the beginning of his gospel, pays close attention to time and history and geography, because he wants to show us that the prophetic promise of Isaiah is contextualized within the whole history of God's people, within the whole history of Israel. And so he gives us that long genealogy, which I know all of you skip when you start to read the Gospel of Matthew. He says, from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And then from the deportation to the Christ or the Messiah, 14 generations. And according to Matthew's timekeeping, that promise that is given to Ahaz takes place right in the middle of the second set of 14 generations. God takes roughly 
16, 17, 18, 19 generations to ultimately fulfill his promise. And what this brings us face to face with is the fact that God's timing is not our timing. Pastor burns out and needs to take time off from work. He expects to return in three months, but it takes him two years. An athlete suffers from a compromised immune system. She expects to find solutions from the doctors, but spends half a decade in bed. A late 30s PhD student longs to get married and have children. She expects to find the right person, but no one seems to be interested. I have a friend in that place right now. An accountant looks for a promotion. Interview after interview, he expects to get the new job, but always seems to come in second place. There's some area of relational or family brokenness that we have prayed for years that God would heal, and yet we still feel its sting and its pain. There can be a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting on God, a lot of waiting for God, a lot of longing for him to fulfill his promises. See, waiting has a way of bringing our most kind of beloved idols and insecurities to the surface (laughs) in plain sight, painfully aware. And it has a way of stripping us of all those earthly securities and identities that we find so comforting, of challenging our deepest values, of chastening our deepest longings and desires. And what we discover is what Israel discovered in those 16, 17, 18 generations. That God is not interested primarily in fixing our problems. He will do that. He's more interested in giving himself to us and making us into the sorts of people who desire and are able to receive him. C.S. Lewis once said, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself. Why? Because there is no such thing. And so God wants to write himself, his very personal being and divine presence into the story of our lives, into the story of human history. And this is precisely what we see taking place in Matthew chapter 1. Long genealogy, the story of Israel, what God has been doing in the world. He is the author of this story. And yet what Matthew is saying is that the author of the story has written himself into the story of his people, of our lives. The story of Israel and the stories of Mary and Joseph. And this brings us to the second great mystery, and that's the mystery of presence, of divine presence, of incarnational presence, of flesh and blood presence, of personal presence, of concrete presence. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God becomes fully human without ceasing to be fully God. I mean, this boggles the mind. I remember the first time in high school when I actually thought about this, (laughs) and I didn't get it. 
And so I remember going to my youth pastor at the time and saying, you know, Dale, explain this to me. Is it like a 50-50 thing? 50%, 50%? He said, no, Jordan. He said, it's a 100%, 100% thing. 100% God and 100% human. It's like, Poof. And I've still wrestled with it. I wrote a whole chapter on this, on this topic in my PhD thesis, and I still don't get it. <laughs> I've read what dozens of thinkers, great minds, greater than I will ever be able to fathom, have thought about this. And every single one of them says, at the end of hundreds of pages, behold the mystery. See, you need a prophetic imagination to be able to lean into the mystery. I love that last, that last stanza of let all mortal flesh keep silent. It says, at his feet, think about this, it's talking about the baby. At his feet, the six-winged seraph. Cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence. As with ceaseless voice they cry, Hallelujah, 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 Lord Most High. The cherubim and the seraphim veil their faces at the presence of the feet of a baby, Lord Most High. It's an unfathomable mystery. It's a deep and life-giving mystery. Jay Packer once said this, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. <laughs> Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Just a few generations earlier, St. Bonaventure put it this way. What more suitable act of wisdom than to bring the universe to full perfection? Now think about this. He's saying this is not just a domestic event, although it is that. The incarnation is bringing the whole universe to its appointed perfection. <laughs> He's saying to bring the universe to full perfection by uniting the first and the last the word of God, the origin of all things that exist, and the human creature last to be made. He goes on. What greater act of benevolence than for the master to redeem the slave by taking the nature of the slave? This is, in truth, a deed of such unfathomable goodness that no greater proof of God's mercy, care, and love can be conceived. No greater proof of God's mercy, care, and love can be conceived. And a few generations before him, St. Augustine, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of heaven might hunger, that the fountain of life might thirst, that the light of the world might sleep, that the way may be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of falsehood, the teacher beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. 
with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to pay. What I was realizing as I was reflecting this last week in between caring for children is that this is a mystery. I wanted to be able to explain its profound depths to you. But what I came to realize is what we need is poetry. What we need is song. What we need is music. Because you can only think about it, and you can only write about it, and you can only talk about it for so long before you just have to sing, adore, ponder, wonder, be silent. That's why Christmas Eve service is going to be so wonderful. This is just going to be one reading about his coming and then a song. One reading and then a song. One reading and a song. And how is it that you respond to this mystery? This is where I want to finish with us. I talked about earlier how it's hard for us to grapple with mystery. We balk at it. We don't know what to do with it. We can't control it. Prophetic imagination invites us to lean into it, but that's not our instinct. So often our instinct is actually to resist it. So I want to ask you, how are you responding to the mystery of Emmanuel, God with you? Are you joining the cherubim and the seraphim at his feet? Are you joining Joseph in quiet, bewildered obedience? Are you joining Mary in receptive wonder and joy? Are you joining the shepherds and the magi in faithful pilgrimage to who knows where? What is the disposition of your heart and mind as we approach the child? What is your emotional and spiritual and physical posture towards Emmanuel? I would like to end by once again drawing your attention back to the painting and your art card. When I first saw this painting, I thought it was, had something to do with the Christ child coming to bring good news to the poor. I could imagine this being a powerful social, economic, political statement this artist was making. Maybe it is. But I found the artist's explanation that's on the back of the art card so surprising. It was about the poverty of the man's response to the touch of the Christ child. It was a different sort of statement about a different sort of poverty. I wonder if we, too, can see ourselves in this painting as the artist did. So would you look at the painting as I read the artist's own reflection to you? In a dream, the artist, William, recognizes himself as the man sleeping in a green army sleeping bag, trying to save money by sleeping out in the open. He sees a light approaching and hides to watch what happens. It is Mary carrying a kerosene lantern in one hand. Her other arm cradles her child. She stops when she sees the sleeping figure and kneels beside it, putting down her lamp. 
she lets the child stretch forth his little hand and gently touch the forehead of the sleeper. The man frowns and mumbles, buzz off, will you? He's proud of his young manhood, of going where he pleases, but owing no one anything. That can't be me. I'll never reject him, William cried out loud, so loudly that he woke himself up. In his dreams, he wanted everyone to recognize and accept the child. But was he really ready to give up his dream of independence? He stared at the ceiling a long time, wondering about himself and about the people on the hill. What if the child reached out and touched them? What if the child reached out and touched you this Christmas? What would be your response? Brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.